Hi, welcome to Responsa Radio, where you ask and we answer questions of Jewish law in modern times. I'm Rabbi Avi Killip, speaking with Rabbi Ethan Tucker, Rosh Yeshiva at Mahon Hadar, a center for higher Jewish learning based in New York City. Hello. Hi, Avi. How are you? I'm great. How are you? Doing great. How much danger am I allowed to put myself in? Can I go skydiving, which is relatively low risk, but certainly dangerous? How about base jumping, mountain climbing, climbing Mount Everest? I am mostly thinking about extreme sports, but this question could be extended beyond that as well to smoking cigarettes, eating unhealthily, and the like. So we have a big question here. How much danger are we allowed to put ourselves in? This person's a lot more uh, adventurous than I, so I'll have to... I don't know if I can empathetically answer the uh, Mount Everest piece, but we'll try to engage it. You know, it's interesting. It's a passage in the Talmud Yerushalmi in a different context, which uh, reports the view that Rabbi Yehuda forbade ever going on a boat trip in the Mediterranean. I just think that's interesting. It's like a surprising position, but it indicates, seems pretty clear. He thought that was dangerous. He was like, what do you need to go on a boat trip out in the Mediterranean? Yeah, you go up the coast if you need to go for business. You shouldn't be going that way at all. So I think that's probably an outlier. I mean, we know it's an outlier. There's a lot of uh, famous rabbis in the Talmud who went on plenty of boat trips. But this is a a well-established question of things that you see happening in your broader environment. And did Jews just sort of follow what happens out there in that broader world? Or are they supposed to sort of like hang back in terms of this? Well, I'll admit, I don't usually picture the sages as extreme sports participants. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I think that is fair. Uh, I think that is fair. Let's go to the root question. I think there's a root question behind all of this, which the questioner is presuming, which we shouldn't take for granted, which is, are you allowed to hurt yourself? I forget about doing something that's high risk. Can I actually just hurt myself? Is that permissible? If it's permissible to hurt yourself, presumably it's certainly permitted to put yourself at risk. The Mishnah seems pretty clearly to say no. In Bhavakama, it says someone who injures themselves, even though they're not allowed to, they're exempt. Afapisha no rashai, patur. What does that mean? Meaning they don't have to pay themselves damages. This is a part of the Mishnah that's dealing with compensating people for torts, for injuring them in one way or another. But it's that phrase, afapisha no rashai. Don't think that just because there's no one to pay when you hurt yourself, that that means it's allowed. You're not allowed to do that. But what's interesting is the Talmud on that Mishnah actually seems to entertain an opposing view. Adam Rashai lechabil batzmo, that there actually is a, is a view, at least a constructed view, that imagines that not everyone agreed on that. And I would say, in fact, everyone has to admit that there are certain forms of asceticism that have a long pedigree, right? Fasting, other forms of self-denial. These things hurt yourself, right? The Talmud Yerushalmi talks about a sage who fasted for so many days, his teeth turned black. Okay, we're talking about major self-affliction here. And everyone sort of has to acknowledge that that level of self-affliction at least seems to have some space. But the consensus does emerge in the wake of the Mishnah that it is not permitted to hurt yourself for no meaningful religious reason. 
or for no critical life activity. One, one other element in this came across when thinking about this question. Rabbi Dov Lior, who's a contemporary Israeli rabbi, he's actually addressing a sort of contentious question of, is it permissible to live in dangerous parts of Eretz Israel? parts over the green line, isolated settlements, all sorts of things. And in the course of making what's obviously a very political argument there, he says, did anyone ever suggest that it was forbidden for a woman to agree to get pregnant because it injured her body or put her life at risk or any number of things? You say, of course not, right? We're always making some decision about certain activities seem to be just part of the non-negotiable fabric of life and civilization that we recognize they may have some sort of pain that they involve the human body in, but that doesn't shut down our discussion. So that's the sort of, I'd say, overall outline here. You're not allowed to hurt yourself, except when there's some overriding issue. I think that it does sound like there's something different here between saying you're not allowed to hurt yourself and you're not allowed to try to hurt yourself. That when you're fasting, you know that for that many days, at least, you know that that's going to hurt yourself, which feels different than the other two examples, either of pregnancy or of living in the dangerous place, where your goal is not to hurt yourself, your goal is to do something else. That falls into the question of risk. You may hurt yourself and maybe even likely hurt yourself, but that's different than saying, I will go out for the sake of trying to put myself in danger or hurt myself. Yeah, that's a nice distinction. I think maybe that's a helpful way of saying when you're in that situation of I am going to hurt myself, the consensus clearly comes to a place of saying that's not allowed. Now, what does that come from? So that view really is borne out by an interesting reading of uh, a verse in the Torah, which says, The plain sense of that phrase is, guard yourselves very well in the context of not succumbing to idolatry, not forgetting the commands at Sinai, not forgetting the moment of the revelation. You've got to kind of guard that, guard your souls almost in a very literal way. But it's taken to mean, guard your life, right? That there's a kind of almost uh, religious biblical command to take actions that will make sure to preserve your own life. And just to give one amazing story of this that plays out, reported in the name of the Tzantzer Rebbe, Rav Arye Leib Halberstam, who at the end of his life was ill, and the doctors had uh, prescribed a whole range of things that he had to make sure to do. And among them was that it was completely forbidden for him to eat maror, at the Seder, specifically, you know, what Ashkenazi Jews ate in that context, which was horseradish, and he would have eaten a kazait and olives worth of it. And they told him, this will absolutely put your life at risk. You may not do it. And it's reported of him that when he got to that moment in the Seder, he would pick up the maror that he was, you know, sort of ready to eat. And he would then say, Baruch atah Hashem elokeinu melech haolam asher kidshanu b'mitzvotav etzivanu, who has commanded us to guard our lives, and he would then put the maror down on the table. Now, that's a very dramatic image on its own terms, but what it shows you is him kind of acting out his understanding that taking steps to guard one's life, and in particular, refraining from dangerous activities, he was acting out as a fulfillment of a divine command. Is that a bracha that's anywhere else? Do other people use that? 
No, it seems to be that he basically, in an ad hoc way, made it up on the spot. But the source here that quotes it emphasizes that he did it with God's name, like actually with the name of God. So he did it as a real blessing. It, uh, my mind is spinning with different ways and contexts wherein we might use that bracha to be really powerful for people. But I think it would take us in a different direction. So I'll send us back into this question instead. All right, good. We can do a future episode on it. You know, I think that the main message there is your body is not yours, right? Or it's not only yours. And that a religious perspective in that sense, informed by this value, it can't ever be completely compatible with a libertarian ideal of, well, I can do whatever I want with my body. It's a different conception of freedom. It's not freedom to do whatever I want, but it's freedom from oppression in order to maximize human dignity and God's presence in the world. One of the consequences of that is there might be things you want to do that you're not allowed to do to your body. So I think one of the things I love about the way this questioner framed the question here is that they're not asking, can I put myself in danger to defend my country? Or can I put myself in danger to fulfill the mitzvah of eating maror? They're saying, can I put myself in danger to go skydiving, which you may not want to do, but they may want to do. Um, or can I put myself in danger to climb Mount Everest? And I think it, it's interesting also to then tack on the, or how about smoking cigarettes or eating unhealthily? Because there are people, the adventurer people out there, who would say, if I don't go skydiving, I'm not really living. And I don't know if we can say that same thing about if I don't eat this bag of potato chips i'm not really living maybe some people will say yes but these depends which crowd you hang with exactly and which kind of potato chip <laughs> <laughs> but this question of can i put myself in danger not necessarily for the sake of a higher good but for the sake of a thrill or for the sake of personal enjoyment yeah so i let's come back to that what you're leading us to is sensitivity to the fact that it's one thing to throw your life away or, you know, in, in Rav Halberstam's case, to eat the maror that the doctor told him not to eat. But a lot of other cases are in a grayer area. You're taking some kind of risk. And in particular, you might be taking a risk in a context where a lot of other people take that risk. And it's just sort of a normal thing that's done. And is that a factor at all for judging it? So if one element here is this really very intense command as it's been processed over the ages to avoid activities that put your life at risk. There's another concept which is played out in the Talmud, which goes by the code words based on a, on a biblical phrase, God guards the foolish. Shomer p'tayim Hashem. And let me give you the text here where it comes up. We have to do a little bit of ancient astrology just to kind of understand what's going on here. But the details aren't really important. It's just to kind of get the context. So Shmuel in the Talmud in Shabbat is dealing with the question of bloodletting. Right? This is before we had modern medicine, we had bloodletting. <laughs> and this was a kind of regular part for many people of, I don't know if maintaining health is the right way to put it, but it was a sort of part of a bodily regime of sometimes what they felt could strengthen the body, but also recognized to be risky. And it's very clear that people died from this. So you find in the Talmud all kinds of discussions of when is bloodletting okay? What do you do after you bloodlet? So here Shmuel says, 
You can only have a bloodletting on Sunday, Wednesday, or Friday. Okay, now why yeah, is I, that? I always follow that myself. <laughs> exactly. So the Talmud is trying to sort of figure out what's going on here, and it, it says, well, why why not Tuesday? What's wrong with bloodletting on Tuesday? And playing with the kind of ancient cosmology of understanding the planets kind of cycling around in the zodiac and showing up in a prominent fashion at different hours of different days, okay? The Talmud says, well, we know Tuesday you can't do bloodletting because during the daylight hours on that day, Mars which is the planet associated with violence and danger, right? In keeping with ancient Greek and Roman cosmology, passes through Gemini, which is the constellation associated with bad luck. This is a general trope that pairs things that are even in rabbinic literature and bad luck. So you got Mars in Gemini. That's really bad news. That happens on Tuesday during the day. So I understand why that's out for bloodletting. But the Talmud says, but Mars passes through Gemini during the day on Friday as well. And Shmuel allows bloodletting on Friday. And the Talmud's answer is, since so many people do it on Friday and are apparently fine, apparently Friday was a popular day for bloodletting, and they're not just dropping like flies, God protects those who foolishly ignore the risks. Now, what, what is this text getting at, right? This text is getting at, there's a sort of theory, translating it to our day, it's a kind of almost medical theory of something that if someone were coming to me and saying, should I bloodlet on Friday? I would say, well, actually, the risks indicate that you shouldn't do it then. And there's a common practice where everyone's doing it and most people are basically fine. And the question at that point, essentially, the Talmud is asking is, do we then vilify and forbid people from doing bloodletting on Friday? Or is this like, yeah, I know trans fats are bad, but everyone eats potato chips and I can't turn a single bag of potato chip into a rabbinic or biblical violation. That's what this category I think is trying to get at, places where we might not love that people are behaving this way, but it's very hard to really shut this down as deviant given that it's just not egregious enough. I think in bringing this text, you are also underlining a reality that sometimes what we think of as fact changes and what we define as dangerous changes. You know, when I hear you read this text, it's like it involves a practice that is, you know, the best medical technology of the time, which I now look back on and say, well, don't bloodlet ever. And an astrology that I'm also not subscribing to as powerful or that I don't check in with when I make decisions. You know, I don't say I don't fly in airplanes on Fridays because of Mars and Venus. Um, <laughs> right. You know, not that I even know if Mars is in the sky on Fridays. Like this is, <laughs> this is all part of a technology, so many different levels of technology that are not active in my life when I ask myself if something is dangerous I don't check in with any of those ideas which I think is just a helpful reminder that what's dangerous for one person or what feels obviously a good idea or a bad idea to one person may not in fact register as dangerous for someone else yeah so look over time clearly things change I think to me what's interesting about this text is from the frame of reference of this passage in the Talmud Everyone agrees Mars passing through Gemini is bad, and everyone seems to experience that as dangerous. And yet, even in that context, there's a sort of like, 
Well, I don't know. We got to let certain things go. And this was Rav Moshe Feinstein when he was asked about smoking back in the 1960s. This was the approach that he took. He basically said, I know there's studies that say cancer and, you know, all of the things being equal shouldn't do it. Certainly a serious Torah personality thinking about this should not start smoking. And yet... He's unwilling to vilify all the people who smoke. Too many people smoke, right? It's basically, it's not deviant enough of a behavior that he's willing to say, this is a violation of your obligation to safeguard your body. Now, I think that tshuva has not worn well with time. This goes to your point about things shifting. I think we can quite comfortably say that the risks of smoking have now been so firmly established that that doesn't seem like it's a God will protect those who are careless and those who are foolish, that seems more like someone knows this is basically going to cause lung cancer and any kind of regular smoking would seem to clearly be out. So, you know, if I were to sort of sum up and try to direct this towards an answer, the question really is where are the thresholds here and what what falls in one category? Because we've got a few legal principles here. One, There's some religiously significant rituals and other basic elements of life that may involve risk or self-harm that we treat as acceptable. That could be anything from a woman getting pregnant to people fasting on Yom Kippur to fasting in an optional context, a certain amount of that we just allow. A second thing is, as a matter of principle, if you have strictly optional, risky behavior, which is harmful, that's forbidden. You're not allowed to just do that to yourself in that way. And then the third is, there are some commonly done actions that even though there's risk involved, they're sort of so common that we can't and won't excoriate people who choose to do them. And I think that's the category where a lot of the debates around food and food policy have fallen. Like, can you really say eating a hamburger or eating meat, you know, X uh, amount of frequency, we're really going to actually criminalize that? The question is, how do we sort what into one category here? Now, here, I think think you alluded to this already. I think to a certain degree, we can rely on scientific knowledge and general studies to kind of guide us with respect to what's harmful to the body. As I said, if you ask me, yeah, being like a regular smoker, smoking multiple cigarettes a day, that just seems out. Like we can be sensitive to people who are addicted trying to get off, but that's out as an activity that it's permitted to begin. It's just that the danger is too clear and there's no necessity to do it. Some tolerable level of risk, you know, you're driving a car, you're doing any number of other things, we clearly don't assume that's a problem. Mount Everest, right? I think the question with Mount Everest, if you were to ask me, I would be inclined, there's some combination of looking at the statistics. I think you have a pretty high mortality rate there that might seal it, you know, alone for me. But there's also an element of kind of looking around the society and asking, is this something people consider extreme and dangerous or not? Is there any purpose to it other than thrill? And even that term, extreme sports, right? I mean, extreme sports sometimes means like doing an Ironman race, but an extreme sport in the sense of like really like, you know, deep diving without a tank and all that kind of stuff. That feels to me, along with Mount Everest, like it might be out, you know? Now, I say this, I understand for some people, as you pointed to, 
that's so uh, that's so exciting. That's sort of part of the reason to live. Look, at the end of the day, we live in a world where people are free to do what they want to do. I think in the context of this kind of discussion, we're saying, look, people are going to decide to do what they want to do. What does Jewish tradition have to say about this? I think Jewish tradition probably is the voice telling you not necessarily to go up Mount Everest. If you make it up and you go back down and you're okay, you know, okay. I don't know that we view someone like that as a sinner retrospectively, but there is something of going into a situation like that that's just for sort of the thrill and the fulfillment. And I think does go to that question of who does own your body? Have you been entrusted it in a way that, yeah, demands some restrictions on your behavior? So I've been sitting here thinking about that original bracha that you mentioned of, you know, if you said, I am commanded to to take care of my body. I wonder if an interesting test would be, could you say that blessing before you do the activity? Could you say, I put on the right parachute, I got the right gear, I got the right guide, I have the right securities in place, and I am fulfilling that even though I'm about to go skydiving? Or... If you can't say that, if you can't feel good about that blessing, then maybe that's a red flag. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, the way maybe I could embrace that is to the extent your comfort with saying the blessing actually made you feel good statistically about the safety of what you were doing. That resonates with me, right? I mean, in skydiving, I think, is a good example where that feels to me like you don't really hear about people dying that much from skydiving. Like, if you are with a trained person and you do what you need to do, it's very scary, but it's not actually that dangerous. I mean, I could be wrong on the statistics there, but my basic, you know, layperson's understanding is that that's so. And I think, yeah, nothing that we've said points to the notion that you're not allowed to do scary things, Right. I mean, a roller coaster is another example of that. Sure, it's scary. You, you almost feel like you're going to die at a certain moment in a really scary roller coaster. But what's wrong with that? Right. There's nothing particularly dangerous about that, as long as you don't have some kind of condition. I, I want to throw in one other dimension here, which I think is a little uncomfortable, but I, I think it's important. I feel some obligation to say it. I think a person also has an obligation to think about how the activity will be perceived by others, particularly by those to whom they may be responsible, whether it might be parents, children, or other family members, if God forbid something went wrong. In other words, would a tragedy as a result of the activity you were involved in, would it be perceived as a freak accident that was just, you know, tragic? Or would you be perceived as having done something irresponsible? And the reason I raise that is, you know, the v'nishmartem ma'od l'nafshotichem, guarding your life, is about God being affected by the risks that we take with our bodies. But it's important to remember other people are also affected by the risks that we take with our bodies. And I think we have to take into account whenever we're engaging in some activity that feels like it's playing with the lines we've talked about here, what's the kind of anguish we might cause them if, God forbid, we play the odds of a risky situation and lose. Everyone makes decisions that they don't, you know, completely shut down based on what would happen if, God forbid, something went wrong. And yet, I think that's got to be also a piece of the calculus. If I were to say what unites this with the first piece is what I think elements of the Jewish tradition call on us to do is not to think of ourselves as completely isolated in ourselves. We're custodians of our bodies, both as a kind of image of God and as being part of a web of responsibility to other people as well. So what we've come to is really 
when you're facing a decision like this, you weigh the risks and you weigh your responsibilities. And then the truth of the matter is we can't give a clear answer because every situation is different and each individual is going to have to make those determinations for themselves. Yeah, but that there's a sort of serious religious obligation to get to a place where you could tell yourself and others a convincing story of it was totally reasonable for me to think that I would enter this situation and exit it just fine. And if you can't do that, probably you haven't been dealing with it as responsibly as you should. Great. I hope everyone is able to engage in life's thrills in a safe way or as safe as possible. Hear, hear. Fools rushing where angels fear to tread. And so I come to you, my love, my heart above my head. We're Sponsor Radio is a project for the Center for Jewish Law and Values at Mahon Hadar and is produced by Jewish Public Media, which creates, curates, and promotes excellent Jewish content. If you have a halachic question you'd like answered on the show, email us at halacha at machonhadar.org. You can also leave us a voicemail at 215-297-4254. Fools rushing.